Stand out from the crowd by gaining the right experience. The next step in your cybersecurity journey starts with Cybrary. Sign up for the Insider Pro or Teams product to learn and develop skills and reach your goals. Have you wondered what's involved in venture capital fundraising? In this episode of the Cybrary podcast, we welcome Les Craig, co-founder of Red Owl Analytics and current partner at Next Frontier Capital. From their years of experience in cybersecurity, Les, Mike, and Jonathan talk about the successes and pitfalls of starting businesses, what fundraisers should understand about venture capital firms when seeking funding, and the importance of building connections and forming trusted relationships. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Cybrary Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cybrary. Uh, today, Jonathan and I are talking to Les Gregg. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jonathan Myers. I'm the principal infrastructure engineer here at Cybrary. So I'm responsible for all the cloud, DevOps, and CICD stuff and defending those things. So, Les. Les. Great. Uh, so once again, my name is Les Craig. I'm a partner at Next Frontier Capital, uh, which is an early stage regional venture capital firm uh, located in Bozeman, Montana, where we are today at the global headquarters, global NFC headquarters. <laughs> so yeah, great to be here and amongst old friends. Yeah, a uh, little disclaimer, uh, Les and I work together at Red Owl and Jonathan and I work together at Red Owl. Les and Jonathan actually never worked together at Red Owl, but, uh, but here we all are, uh, staying connected. Um, so yeah, so Les, I don't know if you want to give a little background on like what you guys do and um, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll tell you. Maybe I'll start a little bit with kind of my journey to, yeah, to that'd be great at the firm in the first place. Um, so as 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 Mike said, uh, I was one of the co-founders of Red Owl. I started out. I was VP of product. Um, I think my going away mug uh, appropriately titled it uh, VP of everything. I had a bunch of different roles at the company as 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 the as we evolved from three to, I think it was around 30 when I left. Um, but um, super fun journey, just learning uh, the whole startup experience, kind of drinking from the fire hose. Um, you know, was on the, the Sand Hill Road tour with, with Guy and Rennie when, when we went out to raise our, our uh, Series A. And so I, I had it, you know, I kind of got some experience on that side of the table uh, when, we were, when we were raising. Um, and you know, from Red Owl, I, I, I started, um, I, I took a break shortly after we raised our A, I, I, I needed, I really needed a break. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I, I started a data science services company called The 20. That was a fun little ride um, and eventually uh, landed up at Montana State University where I ran a, uh, an incubator program called the Blackstone Launchpad. So um, did that for about three years. And then in 2017, when Next Frontier Capital was raising uh, our second fund, I joined the team here as a partner. And so about nine years now uh, working in startups, with startups, helping startups. And now, um, you know, for the past three years as a partner at, at NFC, leading investments in early stage companies. Um, so that's how I got here. A little bit about what we do. Um, so we're, we're now on our third fund. Uh, our first fund was primarily focused on providing access to capital for Montana founders. Um, there was quite a backlog here, great founders working on really, really great ideas. But you, you can imagine, you know, probably the typical reaction of a California VC when you call and say, hey, I'm, I'm in Montana building a high growth startup. Um, and, and frankly, before 2015, there was, I mean, it was, it was a rounding error. It was a basically zero venture dollars, uh, you know, annually, maybe a couple million, um, laughable number, um, but, but sad. I mean, there just was not access. There wasn't a boots on the ground presence. And so since our firm's inception, uh, we have now not only helped, we've invested in uh, 20 companies with a Montana operating presence. Um, we have 33 portfolio companies across all three funds. Um, and uh, we're, we're really proud of the number we're most proud of is, um, you know, we've, we've attracted a little over $6.50 for every dollar we've invested in our Montana portfolio alone. And to date, that number is about, there's about 200 million that's been paid in to uh, Montana-based tech companies. But we also, with Fund 3, we've diversified our strategy a little bit, and we're starting to invest a lot more uh, in the region that we're calling the Intermountain West. So Colorado, Montana, Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming. Nothing happening in Colorado. Uh, no, no tech yeah, in Colorado. It's really, really. Uh, <laughs> Colorado's been fun. I, I started to get involved in Colorado when I was in with the Blackstone Launchpad in in uh, around 2015, and I would go down there and I would spend a lot of time in 
Techstars community, uh, a lot of time with the Boomtown Accelerator. So a lot of the early stage programming down there. Um, and, and it's been a, it's been fun just getting to know folks in that community. And it, it is it is hot, especially Denver, by the way. Yeah. Denver is where most of the early it's kind of like the similar phenomenon what happened a few years ago with the Bay Area or with um, uh, kind of Palo Alto area. And then the, the big migration up to San Francisco, like that's kind of similar phenomena in you know, Boulder and now this big migration to Denver where a lot of the early stage, a lot of the hotter companies. Do you find that they're the hotter areas tend to be also where there's a high density of like colleges and universities? Cause I feel like that's the case. Like if you look, it's Boston, it's Denver, Boulder, it's, you know, various places. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a couple of things that helps with, I mean, number one, there's just this natural, um, you know, cycling of young, you know, energetic people, you know, obviously the four year cycle that as opposed to me, that's old and not energetic. <laughs> The stalwarts of yeah um, of tech, but uh, you know <laughs> the grumpy old men. <laughs> and you know it's it's I'd say it's rare. You know, a lot of times people think like, oh well, colleges and universities that's a great hub for startups because students are starting companies and students are and I you know those aren't necessarily the the highest you know probability or highest prospect for attracting early stage investment. It happens on occasion. Um, we invested in. A pretty early stage company that was a you know essentially spin out of Montana State University, but but much what's much more exciting about that type of environment is, I think it provides um, it contributes to the culture, and so generally those sorts of dynamic kind of college communities where there's you know lots of great academics, lots of great students, lots of great tech talent. I mean, it generally leads to the culture that I think attracts uh, great founders. So. Which is interesting because San Francisco doesn't really have like a huge college presence per se. Yeah. Right. There's like UCSF and like a handful of like super small things, but I guess because Stanford is so close. Exactly. And I think that's, that's what happened. I mean, I kind of remember it. I want to say it was probably around 2012, 2013, where that kind of migration started happening where so many companies started moving their headquarters to San Francisco because that's where people wanted to live. I mean, that's where the quality of life was. That's where the vibrant scene was. That's where people could actually afford housing well at the time i guess it's food. <laughs> food food yeah. food 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 scene yep yeah. so yeah yeah but you know it's interesting too similarly like with montana state university another thing you get with university like culture and, and is, is you get academic centers of excellence and so one of the coolest um little known facts about where we are in bozeman montana it's like you know i told people i was moving here they're like oh are you gonna ride a horse to work or like you know what are you gonna do ranch bison like like no actually there's some good stuff here but but interestingly montana state university has one of the strongest uh photonics and optics programs in the country i mean there's arizona state there's others that are you know one like maybe one rung above them but it's a it's a strong cluster and not only is it a, an academic center of excellence for that that sort of industry? But there are, I think, per capita, we have more photonics companies in Gallatin Valley, which is you know the county where where, where MSU is, uh, than anywhere else in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And granted, I mean, it's like the joke in Montana is like, per capita, anything we're number one in the country. <laughs> it's just, there's like a million people in the whole state, but. But that being said, I mean, it's it's a really it's a really exciting scene um, right now. We are invested. I'm on the board of a photonics company here in Bozeman. That's just unbelievable technology, um, almost sci fi kind of tech. It's really, really special, special company. Um, and then uh, the, the most um, most significant investment, I would say, in the photonics space to date is a company called Blackmore Sensors and Analytics, uh, frequency mod- modulated LIDAR or FMCW LIDAR system that was uh, tackling kind of the perception perce- or uh, sensor system to be integrated with the perception stack for autonomous driving vehicles. Um, the company was actually acquired by Aurora, um, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, a Bay Area company, one of the hottest in the space. Um, and they actually, Aurora just acquired ATG, Uber ATG last yep. week. So, yep. so anyway, so now there are, you know, over a hundred Aurora employees in, in Bozeman. What started out as a LIDAR spin out, essentially of university technology um, in 20, gosh, when was that, 2016, I think? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I'd say that's pretty common. Like Cyber is based out of College Park because University of Maryland, so we enjoy those benefits. And then you notice a lot of like cyber stuff, like mm-hmm. Red Owl was in Baltimore, yep. like, and then a lot of that like data science stuff, you got Johns Hopkins right there. You're getting all the people that are getting out of yeah. the science field and want to go crunch other data. 
Um, and then if you look at Stanford Medicine, like that just spins out yep. medical startups like nobody's business. Yep. But right. Stanford has that special program where they just kind of give you their IP and then they take it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so... So, and so interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I've been working with Montana State University most mostly, I mean, I have some great relationships at University of Montana, which is just down the road in Missoula, but Montana State University and, and Daniel Giuliano, the, the director of tech transfer there, um, they have taken leaps and bounds in terms of reinventing that model to encourage the commercialization of IP. And there's some really amazing programs that have gotten off the ground recently, but he's you know primarily modeling it off of yeah, off of Stanford, like <laughs> playbooks written, you know. So, yeah. so it's it's pretty exciting. And the idea too then is hopefully you also attract faculty members that want to commercialize technology, right? right? That creates the whole you know snowball. Like so, yeah. Um. So, um, I'm curious, like, what, how your technical background, how much does that play? Like, you, when I've talked to VCs, it's always a. a there's a wide array of yeah. uh, capability and knowledge. I'm curious, like how you, how you sort of find yourself in that role and, yeah. you know, being much more technical than I think a lot of others tend to be. Perhaps. Yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. I, you know, so I, um, I mean, I was applied math computer science major in my undergrad, but I think, you know, the joke always at Red Owl was, you know, the, uh, the, the, the programming language that I, that I learned uh, at the Academy was ADA, ADA 95. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So like how relevant is that? You know? Not relevant. <laughs> I know. So it's like, you know, I'm I'm not the kind of guy that's gonna like, you know, get it get down with the CTO of a company and like, you know, peel back the frame. You know, I, I would say I know enough to have a conversation. But one of the things that you know we really pride ourselves, I think, as a regional, uh, as a regional fund. So specifically, we don't have any vertical specificity in the investments that we make. We do have uh we do have more comfort level. Like I love seeing cybersecurity deals because that's where a lot of my network is. And I mean, I've even, I've even reached out, you know, I think gee, we've talked about a couple of companies. And so, so I think that's the more important thing, at least for, for our firm as a regional investor without vertical specificity, like none of us are experts in any of these, um, you know, business verticals that we, we invest in, but um, you know, we're more generalists when it comes to, um, the technology, but certainly having some aptitude and comfort um, helps. And in some cases, it's interesting, like as a regional firm, like I've looked at biotech deals. You talk about how, how like out of the wickets that is, right. but you know, it, it, those, those require like just a deeper level of effort and reading and, and doing, doing homework. Um, but, but ultimately it, it, it gets back to the relationships that really help us, I think, you know, source great, great potential investments, but then also due diligence on those investments. Cool. So Jonathan and I have talked to any number of companies that, you know, at various stages of, you know, having um, been successful or going through the process, have gone through various processes, but we've never really talked to someone who sits on that other side of that table. I'm curious, like, what is it that you're looking for? Like, what, if I, if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to close you, right. uh, What what do I, what do I, what do I, what do I do? So, so G, I got to tell you, like, this is one thing that as a former founder totally perplexes me as to why this is such a mystery, because it's actually not that complex. Like VC is, is a very simple, simple game. Um, it's just, there's so much like of a m- mystery or mystique about it. And, and I, you know, I, I'm glad you guys are doing this today. Cause I, hopefully this is like one of many of like people just like, you know why there's mystique, right? No, there's this like legend around Sand Hill Road, right? I guess, like I guess. these like castles well, that are built on this yeah, one strip of road. You know, <laughs> well, I and I hope you know. I think one of the, one of my biggest hopes for the industry is that you know there's there continues to be I think more more diversity in the industry, uh, more diversity of background and, and just just in general. Um, I mean, even the fact like here I am a veteran, you know, that was an Army Ranger, and you know, like. And we didn't even talk about that. That was before I like had a professional career, but like that's kind of rare in the industry. And I'm I'm starting to see more of it, and it's it's great. But but you know I think it's gonna. It's also what a lot of people don't realize is this is such a new industry. Yeah, I mean really, you know, it, it, it's it's a few decades old, really. Right. right? And so I think that's part of it too. Is I think the more it evolves and the more like the, the secrets out. But like when literally when we were out in Sand Hill Road raising Red Owl. 
I had no clue. I mean, I, you know, I read the books and everything. I read venture deals and well, Silicon Valley wasn't out yet. And even some of the, like, like uh, secrets of Sand Hill road, certainly. Well, those that wasn't out yet, you know, but um, you know, like I didn't, I really didn't even understand what was going on and we were in the process of doing it. And I can remember, I think it was so foreign to all of us that I can remember literally, I mean, it was, we were taking paper copies around and I can literally remember being in the back of the car and uh, shuffling slides being like, well, that didn't work. Well, let's take this one out and put that in. And like, I mean, it was like every pitch was different. Um, you know, and some of those pitches were just like hilarious, like just the kinds of questions that we were asked. And so, anyway, but, but I think it also ultimately got down to, I didn't understand, we didn't understand what we were doing. And when you under, when you have an understanding of what you're walking into, you, you can be so much more effective. Like, I don't need to say this, like, it's, it's just, it's simple. It's simple. It's doing business. So to give you a little bit of an insight out of the playbook, I think one of the biggest things we see as a, as a regional firm is like founders that are aware of what stage they're at and what type of investment they should be, should be raising, you know? And so like for our firm, and that's what I'll kind of talk to today, because that's like a good frame of reference. And I think it's helpful also to where a lot of companies find this, like this chasm of like, I can't get meetings. I can't like, nobody's interested. And so we don't ever touch concept stage stuff really. I mean, unless we have done it on occasion in Montana, but it's primarily, it's, you know, relationship based. And, you know, so generally I think as a founder, you have to be comfortable going out and raising a couple hundred grand to a million bucks, like first money in seed stage. Like you got to have a network to do that. If you don't have a network, I always tell people like, think about going through some of the programming, Y Combinator, Techstars, like go through a, a tier one national program. Yeah. Um, they're everywhere now. They're everywhere now. Yeah, and and even, labs is like yeah, everywhere. Right. And even if you can't get into one of those, uh, there's uh, there's like these new start these startup studios or like the new like second generation of accelerators. And, you know, I'd say like, find a good program that has a good reputation, get do do your homework, get some references and then, you know, but, but there's got, you've got to stitch together a way before you go talk to VCs, um, typically of, you know, how to get that first million bucks in. And then, and so then, then you're off to the races. It's like, then what do you do? Right. And, you know, I think the answer is like, stay lean, stay small, um, stay focused, but don't be afraid to test hypotheses. Like what, what VCs coming out of that, I think that first seed stage, that first money in, what they want to see is, is this a founder that's humble? They're, they got to be gritty. They got to be humble, resource efficiency, but they've got to have learned something like that. That money, that first money in is so risky, but if you come out of it and you don't learn anything and you're like, well, like something's working, we don't know why, but this is what we want to scale. That's bad, bad territory. Like go, go back to uncle Charlie and Aunt Susanna and go get another couple hundred grand. So what you, you have to, and then you know, like the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the saying of like fail fast, pivot off. And like, it's kind of a cliche and a throwaway, but, but there's, there's some truth to it in that when you go out to raise your first sort of like institutional money or your, or like when you're talking to seed stage funds, generally there's a couple things they want to see. And, and I would call us like a seed stage fund, but we're also kind of more of a tweener fund. Like, like, we don't write check. We don't lead more traditional. We'll do like a regional series A, but we won't lead, you know, like coastal A's, you know, we won't, we won't lead like a $10 million series A. Um, so for like our stage, generally what we want to see is we want to see, do you have referenceable customers, like real customers that have been using the product? And I think back to like, it's funny, like some of the early uh, red, out, red out customers, like one of my favorites was we had this customer that loved us so much. It was one of our first three pilots. And they were like, oh, Red Eye, you guys are great. Oh, we love you guys. Oh, and then I'd be like, oh, the new product release is out. Let me like give you a demo. Oh, this is so cool. Oh, it's everything we asked for. And I'm like, well, what, what, what's going wrong? Like, what can we fix? Like, what do you, what needs improved? Oh, nothing. You guys are great. You guys are, and I'm like, finally got weird. And I was like, I asked one of our DevOps engineers, I'm like, how often are they logging into the tool? Who is that again? Oh, they've never logged in. I'm like, what? <laughs> They're not even using it. They said they love us. And then sure enough, like as soon as the 90 day free trial is over and they start paying for it, now they're logging in and now they're telling us how bad it is and how much needs fixed. But this is like, get people using your software, get them 
like breaking it, get them like you, you want to be able to have those lessons learned because by the time, by the time you get to a point where you have referenceable customers, by the time you have real revenue, and that's, that's another thing too. Like we don't need to see a lot of revenue like for, for our stage, but we want to see tens of thousands of monthly recurring revenue. Cause it's, it's showing you number one, that there's people are willing to pay like real money for this. Number two, it shows you that you have some inclination of, or, or of, how you're going to price this. I mean, by the way, pricing at the early stage can kill companies. Um, I, I had a, um, there was a company that I, I led an investment in um, and, and we, you know, the, the, the founder thought, oh, people probably pay three to five bucks a month for the, you know, for a seat. I was like, mm, I think they'll probably pay somewhere around one to maybe three bucks a month. In reality, by the time the pricing settled, you know, took another eight months to a year later, People are paying about 30 cents a seat. Yeah. Wow. So, like, but you the only way you learn that is by making people pay for it and getting enough customers. And, and you know, it depends. People are like, well, how many customers before we pitch like a seed stage VC? I like to see like, I don't know, a dozen, because I'm gonna ask for three to five. Like if I'm if I'm actually gonna do diligence and invest, I'm gonna ask for three to five references. I'm probably gonna source on my own another three of those that you don't offer as a reference. I'm going to figure out a way to get introduced. Right. No, but, but these are all like, so, so if you only have five customers, it's almost not enough to even get. So, so I say like 10 to 12, whatever. Um, so they've got to be paying, you got to be hitting some real revenue milestones. And then I think demonstrating an understanding of the sales process and, and the, and, and you don't need to really understand sales efficiency at this point, I think in a company company's journey or the fundraising journey, but you've got to start to be understanding at least how you're going to start to test some hypotheses related to lifetime value of the customer, customer acquisition costs. If you're just like, oh, I'm raising, you know, three million bucks and we're going to spend a million bucks on marketing and like, you know, we're going to hire a salesperson and they're going to figure it out. Like that's if you're treating good. it like Shark Tank. Yeah, right. it's like, right. no, Mark, I want you to do yeah. that for me. That's yeah. why I'm giving you ownership <laughs> right. in the company. Like. And, you know, one of the most mature things, I think, and, and this is this is really like an intro call. It's like, what's the point of talking to a seed stage VC? Like, we're never going to, in terms of, we're never going to make an investment on the first call, right? It's a, it's a process. I mean, understand that. It takes months. It's a relationship. And so, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that I want to see on the first call is that the founder has a level of maturity of a founder who's ready to take the company from seed stage to either a coastal series a, or sometimes you can skip it. Like sometimes you do a regional a and you skip that coastal a, which is really, really great um, for everybody. But um, understanding, I think how the money is going to be used is something that's completely in oversight for, for some founders. And so have a, have a detailed plan, like your pro forma, when you say, Oh, we're going out to raise 3 million and our, our expectation is a 9 million pre. And it's like, what, what, you know, blog did you just read that told you that's the numbers you should ask? We're like, show me why 3 million is the right number. Show me how you're going to use it and show me how it's actually a bridge to the next financeable milestone. And this is where a lot of founders really screw up is they raise and they essentially build a pier out into the ocean. Right. And then they get to some point that's not, it's not a financeable milestone. Yeah. And then, and because, and some of this is related to just structural holes in, in the industry, you know, most, most funds are set up with early stage funds or most firms are set up, they have early stage funds for doing seed deals. And then they have growth, growth stage funds that are due to do like series B and beyond. In fact, nowadays it's weird because a lot of series A funds are even, I would call them growthy. Like they want to see the same types of metrics. They want to see the same types of last 12 trailing like growth and like that typically like you know, it's like private equity-esque, but they want to see growth metrics. Um, so anyway, uh, long-winded long way of saying like founder maturity and understanding how you're going to use the capital is like, I think how I really develop a lot of great rapport with founders. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of um, founders and people I've talked to who've either struggled to find it or end up in, in bad situations down the road sort of are relying too much on the institution to tell them, oh, this is how much money we think you should have or yeah. come up with that plan or 
um, end up like, oh, we should raise as much as we possibly can. Like, if they're willing to give us ten million, like, why wouldn't we take ten million? Where do you um, think that comes from? Yeah. Like, I don't because it's naivete. I think it's I think it's a little bit of of I think there's a little bit of you know their founder. You know, depending on how often you've done it, I think there's it's. I'm curious what Leslie's answer is. Um, yeah. So that well, so there's a, there's a really interesting phenomena that I think it's glazed over quite a bit, and and it's related to. Um, the way, the way you set up a portfolio of investments in venture is very much related to a couple things. Fund size, board seats, um, average check size, reserve ratio for follow-on. So like there's a big equation that goes into how you calibrate deals. And this is one of the really interesting like hidden, hidden secrets of Bozeman Venture. <laughs> to write that book, right? Uh, <laughs> So this is this is like one of the really interesting takeaways though is it's like as you are successful as a VC firm, okay? So like our first fund, 21 million, 10 investments, second fund, 38 million, 16 investments, third fund, you know, we're 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 raising 70 million. Um well, as you get more and more successful, generally your, you know, your ability to raise increases, uh, raise bigger and bigger funds. Generally, you bring on you know more and more partners, or at least more and more you know help. <laughs> right. So you can take more and more board seats, but I mean, it, it gets to a point where you got to balance this teeter totter. And I think what happens is uh, firms get to a point where uh, they raise even regional regional firms, and you know I, I don't want to call out any specific examples, but there's a bunch you can just look in our region. They raise funds that are so large that they can no longer do the types of seed stage deals because they can't write checks that small. They would have to write hundreds of checks a year. And if they're staying generally regionally focused or even vertically specific, vertically focused, they can't write enough checks. So they have to go further downstream. So now they start writing bigger checks at later series. And it just becomes a function of fund, fund structure, not what the companies need. Right. It's funny. It's funny because I um, I think back to, you know, I worked at a professional services company a long time ago and we were small. We, we, we called ourselves like a, a boutique, right? Like we were small six to eight person professional services company, had some contracts. And then there became more and more, as we became more successful, there's this like pressure to grow because yeah. these companies that we're doing business with want to give us more business, but we can't handle the more business. So the only way, and then they're like, well, we can either take all of our business away from you or you can grow to, to meet this business. And so then we found ourselves in these like places where we're like, whoa, these projects are way larger, way riskier, way more complicated than the things we had been working on earlier. And I, it, it's funny, the parallel between just oh, businesses, yeah. right? I mean, like it's, nothing, it's something I've never really thought about from the on the VC side, like what's that really look like? It's it's identical. And it's, you know, it's kind of like it's gets back to, you know, like one of my sayings of like, you're either, yeah, you're either growing or you're dying. There's only two options. (laughs) But, um, but, but what's interesting in VC, I think there's an opportunity to be, and this is where I like, I really, our firms, you know, our philosophy and our mission is to really kind of, and and other people say this, like, oh, we're founder centric, but I mean, we really, we, we are founder centric at our core because that's why we started in the first place to meet Montana founders where they were, to help capitalize them, to get them to a point where they could get follow-on, where they could get coastal investment and to get them ultimately to, to an exit. And we've had five exits in the, across of, um, you know, the portfolio to date. And, and so we're proving that thesis, but we're staying focused on that thesis. We're not, we're not trying to become like, you're not trying to open an office in Sand Hill Road. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what percentage do you think you're spending with your sort of the 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 good invest like the ones that are doing really well versus uh, the ones that are struggling? And I and I ask this. It's a very because I had a friend who in the '90s after um, actually that the CEO of that boutique he went off and and became a fund manager or whatever. And mm-hmm. um and talking to him, he was like, I thought it'd be so exciting. I'd be working with all these smart tech guys. And then he's like, and then I found out like most of my time was spent with the guys who were struggling and it was just, it was, it was hard and painful. And I didn't get to spend any time with the ones that were doing well. 
So yeah. I'm curious, like what your experience has been. And that was like 10, 15 years ago. So I'm sure, um, you know, maybe things have changed. Well, fortunately in our portfolio, they're all doing well. So <laughs> of course. Really, no, you know, so this is interesting though. This, this is one thing that is, is really taught me a lot about, and, and, and I've been, I, I feel super blessed that, you know, some of the, uh, a few of the companies that I've led investments in that have struggled, have gotten to really positive end states. Um, and, and, you know, one of them in particular that was, that was struggling, that I was spending a lot of time with ended up getting an early exit. And so that no longer on the plate. So, right. all. but one of the things that it, it taught me about investing that experience in particular is that you want to be spending your time as much as possible, you know, with, it's like being a, being a father. Like I want to be spending my time as much as possible with all my children, like equally. And I want it to be happy memories, not <laughs> like bailing them out of jail and things. Right. right. So, so, but, but the, what it really gets back to like similar to being a parent is it's like you have, well, I guess it's a little different than being a parent because you can't like choose your children, but, but, uh, but, but you have to make really wise decisions early on. Like with parenting, like I feel like from zero to six, like, that's a foundation. And if you screw that up, like you're in for a ride. So like with founders, when I'm doing diligence now, like one of my biggest criteria is like, is this somebody that I want to spend the next seven to 10 years with? Cause it's, I mean, it's a, it's a marriage. Yeah. And so diligencing the founders at that level, because everything else, I mean, we see three, 400 deals a year at our firm. Um, everything else could be spectacular, but that, you know, that absolutely has to be as well. Right. How much you, do you, you think that? How so, much so, do you so think so that plays into it? Yeah. To answer the question, I guess I kind of I skirted the answer a little bit, but if it's somebody that I absolutely want to get behind and spend time with, even if they're struggling, that's okay. Like that's right. still those are still happy memories. And then the reality is, I think you know all founders in different ways struggle throughout the journey. I mean, that's just part of the business. But if you make good investments. You spend less time struggling with people that you don't want to be struggling with. Um, so, yeah, that, no, and I think um, I think the a good analogy is probably just like how I hire people, right? Like, and I'm making investment in, in terms of uh, the person, their time, my time, and right. Do I want to work with this person? Is one of the most like do I want to sit in the same room with this person? Is one of the most critical parts of the hiring process. Like, you could be phenomenal, um, phenomenally smart, but if for whatever reason, like we just our personalities don't go well. Like if you're struggling, I'm not going to want to be in the room. I'm not going to spend the time with, you You know, whatever it is. And I wonder, um, and you guys are looking at probably relationship building that's going, you know, seven years, that's more, you know, in tech. Like I assume most people are, you know, somewhere between two and five years. Um, I'm always happy when they go a lot lot longer. And I, um, I've had that um, a lot of times, Um, or I get to work with people like Jonathan again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Um, But and, and, yeah. and to raise you on that too, there's even, it's even more relevant in VC. I mean, there's founders that I'm meeting regularly with that I know there's no chance that we would lead an investment in those companies, maybe even in the next two to three years. There's just so early. Right. But that's me choosing to spend time and invest in those relationships. I mean, those relationships could go way beyond 10 years because they could be a fun four or fun five investment. Um, and even the founders, it's interesting, even the founders, like founders that we've invested in that have exited that, you know, you're now having the golden handcuffs on for a couple of years, like they may come back around again. Like you treat right. them well, you, 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 you know, and you focus on, you know, our reputation of being, you know, founder, truly founder centric. And those relationships, frankly, could be end up being life, lifetime career. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, like you still need that network. Like if you're going to lead another yep. investment in another startup, like that's the perfect guy if he's in the same space. Exactly. To go and be like, hey, I need you to take a look. Just tell me what it is. And you have that rapport already. So, I mean, that relationship's probably even more valuable. Exactly. Now. I or, tell or, or, potential, or potential customer. I mean, you and I yeah. have talked in those grounds, right? Where less is reached out. It's like, hey, would you, like you guys this is a company that maybe you guys would want to look at. And it's like, yeah, you know, we'd look at them and as a, from a customer perspective, not from a peer perspective or competition perspective. Yeah. I tell another thing too, that founders don't do enough of is diligencing their VCs. Yes. Something that's so important. I encourage, and I, I try to encourage this um, because once again, you know, we, we have a very 
transparent culture when it comes to like our founder relationships are. So I, I basically tell founders, I pick any, I tell them, pick any of our portfolio. When I get, when we get serious, of course, right. you know, yeah. get out and get, get to a term sheet. I say, pick, pick any of our portfolio company CEOs. I, I want to make an intro. You know, here's the ones I've been most involved with, blah, 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 blah. but I, I want them to talk to our founders and hear it from their, you know, their mouths as well. Do you think that's something also that's like sort of just totally an oversight by from the founder's perspective is the recognition that like, no, this is a relationship. You guys, you're not just, it's not just money that you're interested in. It's it's this longer term. You got, we need to understand you. You need to understand us. And well, I think people is, don't look at it as like a partnership. They look at it as like, oh, you're the bad check, bank, check writer. Right, you're the ATM, right? Like that's, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you guys brought that up because that's actually one of the biggest misconceptions of venture is the, the check writer scenario. It, it, it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. And, and it's actually one of the reasons why I think founders get wrapped up in the fundraising process around silly things. Like one of the biggest ones is valuation mm-hmm. always is. Um, and you know, it, it, it cracks me up because it's one of the least significant terms early on. You know, founders are so intent on, and I get it, I was there. Like, oh, I gotta hold on to as big of a piece of this pie as long as I can. And the reality is like for a meet, for a modest outcome, who cares? Right. Like what you want is the big outcome. And at that point, who cares what the size of the piece is? I mean, you want an outcome. You want an outcome, <laughs> period. Right, exactly. right. Well, you want a good outcome, right. You, you can, yeah. right, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah. right. Ten percent so, of zero is still zero. <laughs> right. So, so it's it's it, it, and and you know there's reasonable limits. Like I think what what probably what another thing founders don't realize is like when I model an investment, when I look at does this investment make sense for us? Do we get to our targeted ownership? What what sort of milestone does this investment you know reasonably get us to? And what kind of expectation can we have at that point in terms of valuation and follow on and where, I mean, we model investments before we do, do, do them all the way out to multiple potential exit scenarios. And I don't just model it for me, model it for the founders too, because we have to be confident that we can get them to a good place in the exit. So typically when we price a deal, when we look at pre-money and what we're paying in and what the, what the post ends up being, it's we take everybody into consideration because it's a team sport and a team game. And a lot of times when I see founders, they'll push back like, oh, we were, we, we think the company's worth, you know, twice as much as that pre-money, like prove it. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or really, why do you think that? Well, because uh, comps this or that. I'm like, okay, well, let me talk to you about why I think that's going to put you way out in front of your skis right. and you will never catch up to it. And that's usually like, those are sometimes like smart conversations that you have to have with first time founders, but it's one of the most, it's, it's, we're not just writing a check. We're not just sitting on some big equity position and like, you know, going to board meetings with our arms crossed and being like, well, how come you're not doing this or that? Like it's, that's not what this business is about. It's about relationships. It's about team working as a team. Yeah. It's about you're not shorting their so, stuff. No, like, right, right, right. Right. no. So, you want to try to get it right. But the worst thing, you, if you get it wrong, the worst way to get it wrong is is being, you know, is is on the overvaluation side in, in my in my perspective. Because I mean, I I experienced that, and it's it's hard to recover from. Right. So when it comes to like transparency, right? I think that's where a lot of founders also struggle. How transparent to be? I think it's difficult. I know um, just in my own career, like I won't even talk about VCs, right? Like with management and being an engineer or whatever, like. I think that there's this, when you're telling somebody bad news, they tend to think that you're, even in that delivery, that you're not really giving them the full story, that you're still sort of sugarcoating the bad news. And so um, I think it can be difficult when you're, like, I'm a fairly candid and very transparent person. And I feel like, um, I feel like if I give too much information, it's sort of like, like they're like, oh, like this must still be the tip of the iceberg. There's so much below the surface. I'm curious, like what your experience is. Yeah. So, you know, my, um, what I try to do with founders from the get-go is, is really create a culture where like, I want them to call me at 2 AM, you know, and I want to, and I want to be excited to get that call, whether it's good news or bad news, because we have that relationship of trust. And so generally like, 
I, I think there's only like, there's only like three types of like landmines that founders can step on, frankly. One is like illegal, doing something illegal. Okay. Duh. Right. The other is, is it kind of a weirder, finer line and similar, but it's like doing something immoral or unethical or misleading or, you know, where it's not illegal, but maybe it's like un, untruthful or like keeping information. And to me, Unseem- that's like, unseemly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the easiest one to just be trans. Like that's where, that's where sometimes you see people trip up and, and there's ways to do it and feel like, Oh, it's not, well, it's not that bad. Like, you know, we're just, we're calculating our, we used to calculate our ARR from terms of our last 12 months. And now we're going to do, now we're going to project it. It's going to be end of month and we're going to multiply it by 12. And that's going to be so like, so that we hit that quarterly growth number. Like it's a stupid example, but it's like, right. I'm just saying like, is that unethical? Well, it's misleading. Like, especially if I'm on the board, like what changed? Why did we change it? You know? So like those kinds of things are, those kinds of things can be like the biggest biggest pitfall. Um, and then the third thing is like just being a jerk or being an asshole. Right. And, you know, I think between those three categories, like as a founder, like there's no, there's no bad news. There's no, um, you know, souring a relationship. Like we're all on the same team, unless it's one of those three things. And then we got problems. Then we got real problems. So. Interesting. I know through my experiences, I sort of feel like there's three categories of money. There's smart money, dumb money, and then indifferent money was the one that I uh, learned about, which was, you know, and I think uh, where they just sort of trust everything is going well. It's not dumb. They're not, they're yeah. not, not aware or they don't right. have, it's not that they don't have opinions or don't think that it could be going better. They just are somewhat indifferent. And, um, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, I think people, you know, my, my feeling is definitely look for the smart money. You want smarter people than you. You want people telling you what you don't want to hear. You you need that as a founder. And I think that's what you should be looking for. Why wouldn't you reach out to your VC? Because he's probably advised other companies that might have tripped over yeah. the same rope. It's, like, it's, a, it's a great point, John. Right. I mean, I think it's one of the things that that is really special about VC and, and we'll, I think we'll, we'll continue to make the model, you know, highly relevant, um, you know, as, as it continues to evolve. But, you know, we see some, like 33 portfolio companies, we've seen, we've seen a lot over the past five years and we've learned a lot too. I mean, even the five exits, you know, prior to coming to the firm, I hadn't really ever been through the legal process of seeing how an exit works, you know, how an M&A works. And let me tell you, it makes the deal docs of like early stage venture look like, like it's PhD level stuff. I mean, it's crazy, right. but, but learning how to work with your legal team, learning how to work with the founders to understand that stuff, to make sure to negotiate it. I mean, it, and by the way, it can be the difference. There's an example in our portfolio of where it was the difference in a significant amount of money for the founder, just by one simple thing that we suggested they do. And that they push back on, and and it was it had a significant outcome for that founder, and barring us doing that, I you know they probably would have they probably would have screwed that up. Well, it's also tough for the founder because he's still driving the train of his company, <laughs> right, right. and then he has to learn this entire right. process right. that's super complex if he hasn't done it before, and it's like he's gonna want to spend time with the thing he knows probably. Yep. And just kind of brush this aside, but it's like if you and, and have it's, that relationship, exactly. And it's it's a soup. It's like a hyper leverage process, especially especially towards the acquirer, especially if you're getting near the end of your runway. Especially if you're like about to run out of money. And we right. we've seen this before too, where it's like, yeah, we'll uh, we'll close this acquisition by the end of the year. Oh well, holidays. Da 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 da. And suddenly we're like. Looking at the runway, we're like, well, the runway is going to run out in like January, February, uh, you know. And so that's another place where you can get your insiders to bridge you so that you take. Because imagine that firm coming back and being like, oh, guys, well, it's the new year. You guys are going to be done soon. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm painting this like a Disney move villain or something. But but there's you, you can see how there's. I mean, I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced the, the, com- the company coming in that's doing the acquiring seemingly to stretch things out to basically break the smaller, the company that they're acquiring a little bit to, to push them to that point where, right, they, they're not sure that they're gonna make payroll or whatever. I've definitely seen it. Um, also, I remember back, I think 
planning for like just the unexpected. I mean, hopefully we never see like the dot-com bubble like we saw in the 90s, but I I was involved in a company that we were being merged and acquired. It was like this sort of roll-up thing was us and, a, and another company and everything was hyper-focused on that deal. And then suddenly like we woke up and the, the, the company that was doing all of the like merging was like, hey, I don't know if you guys saw the news, but like the bubbles burst, uh, we're not doing this anymore. And suddenly it was like, not only were we so invested in that, that and it went away, but we had no deals. We were, we, our, our executive team was so focused on that. We didn't have any big contracts coming. We didn't, and, and the company ultimately went out of business. And I think those yeah. are the things where VC can really help. I think we made a lot of mistakes. I mean, we were a small company early, you know, whatever. And we made some mistakes about how to structure that deal to make sure that like, Hey, if the merger doesn't go through, let's make sure that we get some, some money uh, yeah. to, for our time, <laughs> but yeah. we didn't. You know, <laughs> you know an, another related misconception, I think that founders have a VC is there's, there's a, that there's like some element of control, like in the boardroom or something after we invest, you know, like, oh, we're going to, they're going to make me do stuff I don't want to do. Like operationally, they're going to get involved. And that's, first of all, that's, that's generally not the case. Um, but most importantly, I think founders need to understand, like when we do seed stage investments, we pretty much follow the standard National Venture Capital Association, the standard boilerplate docs. And sometimes founders don't even know what that is. If that's the first time you've ever heard of it, look it up. But we'll put that in the term sheet. We're going to use the standard NVCA docs. And I mean, I've had a founder that's been like, why did you add all this stuff? These like minority provisions, protective provisions. I'm like, that's in the standard NVCA format. And it's like, well, I don't agree to that. But understanding why venture investment is always minority. We take minority positions in companies. And that's a super, that's super unique to think about right? Because we put millions of dollars at risk in a minority position and we don't have any control. So the protective provisions are ways that we mitigate risk related to those controls. But more importantly, and this is something that I have learned by seeing what happens when companies get to acquisitions, when companies get to follow-on financings, there's a couple nuclear buttons in there. And, you know, and a good example is like blocking the sale of a company or blocking a, a, a transaction. And, you know, some founders may be like, well, I'm not giving you that. Like if I, somebody offers me $250 million for my company and you say, no, we're going for a billion, like I want to be able to sell it. And then like the reality is, I get it. You're concerned about that, but it's a nuclear button. Right. Because imagine when somebody on the other side of the table is offering you money and they can leverage you to do things that are going to hurt the investors. Right. right. If we don't have the nuclear button, we can't. Can't, can't negotiate. Yeah, yeah. And right. It, it's, it actually protects the founder. Right. Protects the founder to give them leverage to negotiate. So it's, I mean, it's it that's the complex to, stuff about VC is kind of the docs and the legal, but it's not, it's still, once you get to understand it, it's not, it's not, it's simple. Right. And if you understand the why, like, and again, it gets back to yeah. that relationship, right? Like if, like, why would I be taking money from you? Why would I be getting into this relationship? If I don't, tr if I think that you're going to use that button in some way, that's going to screw me. Like, right. like why, like, no, you're, we're all in this for yeah. the same purpose. And probably what's good for me is good for you. And in less one of those other three circumstances we talked about earlier and fraud yep. or whatever. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I think it's, I think that's a great point. I think it's um, probably one that um, a lot of people don't really think about in terms of why would I give this level of control to you? Um, we didn't, we didn't talk a whole lot about, about cyber specifically like early stage cybersecurity companies but, you know, one thing, one thing I will say about that industry is it's, it's a fascinating trend. I've, I haven't been seeing a, that many seed stage cyber companies lately, as much as I have in the past. I mean, the last investment that we made in a seed stage cybersecurity company was probably 2018, 2019, maybe 2019. 2019. Is it because like it's just a bad sector to be in because <laughs> strategies are so distorted based on the major players that are just going to gobble you up and well leverage you yeah i mean one of the things i i've been seeing lately is i've been seeing a, i've seen a i've seen a couple good companies but they've they just haven't been able to demonstrate the traction that i want to see they haven't been able to um 
really demonstrate, you know, I think that, like different. I want to actually pull on that thread because I, I wonder if it's, if you can actually, because if you can demonstrate some of that, that you're looking for, um, that there's a market, that there's people willing to spend money, if they actually are just sort of skipping that seed stage, they're like, hey, we, yeah. so the only people that you're seeing are the ones that are actually struggling and the ones that aren't, the ones that have that are actually just out there making money, right? And like, and sort of skipping that seed stage because they're able to either somehow they're leveraging other technologies and um, and so yeah. it's not as expensive to get started anymore. So maybe they're able maybe. to do a little bit more on their own. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, right? Because where we're getting at is, I would say more, I'd say the recent trends are probably more around like analytics, AI, yep. machine learning, yep. things like that. Oh, you forgot That's, quantum. You forgot oh, quantum. quantum. Sorry, yeah, quantum. <laughs> military grade. Um, <laughs> those things are not cheap, right? Yeah. To scale that to an enterprise level, right? Because when you're going to go public or get acquired, like you need to have some enterprise customers in the cyberspace. Yep. Right. And scaling those type of backends, right? Like we had similar issues at Red Owl trying to scale like the analytics engine and like the amount of data you're ingesting, it's not an easy feat. Yeah. And so you're gonna need money because you just need the engineering resource mm -hmm. to make that. And I, that's where I, I think- I, I mean, I think it depends on who's starting the company and who's doing that work because yes, I, I think that there's, you have so many of these things, like things that didn't exist in the past, like being able to use things in the cloud and all these other services and, and where it's pay as you go. And so you can build very, like when we started at Red Owl, um, in order to run a model cost us like thousands of dollars, you know, to run it overnight. Like the office space know. moment that we had that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, what, what, when somebody forgot the comma in the CSV or whatever, and like <laughs> spent four grand on nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh, look, the model didn't converge. That was five grand well spent. Um, so, yeah. but I do think that there's, I think that there's a little bit more that you can bootstrap yourself. Um, and, and maybe, I don't know, I'm sure that that's, that's the case for some people. I'm sure it's not the case across the board, I, but I wonder if that's I a little bit of a trend in technology. What I would love to see, I mean, I think so often in cyber, there's a trend where it's like, oh, we got to go after the enterprise, like enterprise, if this is an enterprise solution. And then it's like, oh, well, then you need the the team of cigar chomper, like salesmen that are going to go in the, you know. Well, because end users aren't going to buy it. That, right. End users will not buy right. cybersecurity products. Right. Like, right. I mean, they will, they'll buy LifeLock if you consider that a cybersecurity yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. And then yeah. LifeLock's going to end up paying you money because they lied to you. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. Personally, I don't think I have bought an end user cybersecurity thing, maybe except for like Eero Plus that just, just gives me pie hole basically that I don't have to worry about, yeah. right? Like other than that, like there's endpoint malware protection, yeah. but I would say on Windows, Windows Defenders pretty much got you covered yeah. and like, yeah. I don't know what you'd be paying for. So here's but, but, but there's I something, think. wait, hold on a second, but there's something between enterprise and consumer. This is it. Yeah. So this is, this is where I think there's yes, an prosumer. <laughs> I would love to see, I, and I don't know why I'm not, but like, maybe this is like a call to arms. Why is there not more like of a mid market solution? Because if it isn't, if it wasn't apparent five years ago or 10 years ago, like it should have been, but now more than ever, like those companies need to be posturing and taking, you know, a significant, they need solutions. They need the enterprise tools. Why not build tools for them in the mid-market? And specifically, I think there's a really unique opportunity. And I invested in a company that they weren't a cybersecurity company, but they almost had a cyber-like solution. The founder just didn't realize it. And they they did, um, it was called Alpin. They did um, uh, uh, SaaS subscription monitoring. Mm -hmm. So how many SaaS subscriptions are you paying for that you don't need, you don't use? And really interesting window into the world of third-party authentication. And who am I authenticating with? Oh, I had my Chrome browser open. My kids were on it. They authenticated with a Russian gaming site using my work email address. This didn't actually happen. I'm just saying like, this right, right, is, right. but to me, right. like, this is an amazing cyber, like cybersecurity solution. So, and not only that, but it's one that the mid-market could look at and say, oh, wow, this isn't just a cost center, which like most cyber tools are like, right? I mean, right. It's you're guarding against existential risk. This actually can make me money or save me money. So I have two points on that. 
Right. One, um, if the company's sort of around, right? Like they need cybersecurity insurance, right? The person that's providing that is going to dictate name brands that they want to see. Investors are going to want to see name brands that they're using to protect it. And what makes you think there is a dedicated security person at that mid-market customer that's going to know what they want and what they're looking for? Well, this is a problem. This is a big problem. Or they're just going to buy the one that they're seeing on the ad at the airport. Yep. Right? I think that's an interesting problem because Mike and I get pitched a lot by some software vendors and stuff like that. And it's terrible, but like they got to be making money. Right. Cause they're around <laughs> two years later. Yeah. And it's back up and we're like, no. Yep. Um, and so I think that's, I mean, cybersecurity, we all know there's shortage of people like yep. enterprises can't keep their stuff staffed yeah. and they have money to pay. So I don't, I think it's, you basically, we don't have that middle tier. Because and I think that's where managed service providers and others come into play, right? Yeah. So it's like, why am I building a, why try and sell to all these companies that don't have a security person, have no, they, they, right, like sell to those these other companies that are going to provide that as a service to them. Um, there's scale there. I don't have to make as many sales. I think that there's, I, I think, and we're already seeing that. We talk to any number of companies on this podcast and, and yeah. through people that we pitch or whomever, Um where that's really where they are, right? They sort of see this like, yeah, there's this huge need, this huge market, but it's really hard for us to tap that market directly. And yeah. so we have to go this sort of more indirect route through managed service providers. Makes sense. Yeah. Maybe that's um, the opportunity. The AI bought cyber uh, first quantum machine, quantum cyber <laughs> AI bot. I don't bet you. I think the play, if I'm going to, I don't want to know if I want to say this on the air. I think the play is somehow you have to get into the consumer's mind, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to start making a consumer security product that people want because those are the people that are working at these mid-prosumer, like mid-market levels that are going to want something for all of their computers, right? Yep. And so, because I would assume people in the mid-markets are just taking off-the-shelf stuff and buying a hundred licenses. So, I mean, like, and I don't mind bringing up a company by name, right? Like, so uh, we've talked to them on the podcast, but like LastPass is a great example of something that sort of is definitely geared towards an individual, but then you start looking at their their business um, offering and it's like, wow, this is really compelling. And why wouldn't I want to use this across my company and use this as a security tool and have everyone, because the fact is, uh, everyone's responsible for security. And if you can have a security product that makes sense to uh, the consumer market that's usable by mostly laymen, then you then you have a product that you can bring in-house to a team and know that every all of your staff can use. I, I totally agree with you, Jonathan. I think there's a there's a there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, if I you think can figure out if you can figure out how to make that work. Yes. And I think some of the smaller ones like uh, we use uh, we've talked with like malware bytes. Like mm-hmm. they're not enterprise. They're, I think, I think that's where we kind of heard about them is like in the consumer space, they were like, here's mm-hmm. a free tool, you know, that gets people kind of doing things. Cause we were looking at some that were like silence and they're just like, they're enterprise and they want to price themselves like they're enterprise. Yep. And it's like, I honestly don't know what you do. Cause like, I just don't think you're worth that much money, but BlackBerry bought you. So what do I do? Well, I mean, the thing I think there was, right, the only way we could get licenses for that was to actually go through an MSSP. Like we couldn't, yeah, we couldn't just buy licenses buy direct. Right. We had to. A license, yeah. Right. Like, like what? Model. Yeah. yeah. Right. They, right. They wouldn't sell to us. We, they're like, uh, you guys don't have a big enough security department to actually run this tool successfully. So, and they we weren't, and they probably weren't wrong. And they still wouldn't sell to us. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. I don't know but how much of this we want to keep it, but <laughs> I mean, I think there's definitely opportunity and I think it would be great. It would be great to see more. I know those deals are out there in our region. We're just, we're just not seeing them. It would be good. Well, I think the regions, the Baltimore, Washington area. Yeah, that's true too. It's very a lot, but mm-hmm. well, I always say, you know, one of, one of my favorite investments that we ever made was actually in Bethesda, Maryland based company. Wait a minute. That's not in the Northern Rockies. <laughs> But they did set up a sales office in Bozeman. So that was, is that, that, was is, that is that how they worked it? Is that what they did? <laughs> yeah. So that's always on the table. If there's if there's companies in that region, I mean, I think this is a great place to grow sales, you know, client success teams, that kind of stuff. But um, one interesting thing that that company did, that was a Tata, um, they they kind of simplified. Well, they they created what they call like the cyber risk score. So it was kind of a a simple simple. And I mean, you think about. 
mean, they had customers, everything from universities to the enterprise to I mean, companies like Cyprary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, fun fact, human error is going to be on the podcast. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. yeah the guy. Tommy, you're going to have yeah. to cut this. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to cut this out because it's going to be a yeah. Spoiler. Okay, spoiler. Yeah, that's okay. So, <laughs> so anyway, I love um, so, but, but my, you know, my point there is uh, like they did something very simple, very elegant, and it wasn't even really a cybersecurity company, right? I mean, it was right. like a digital content company. That had I, I mean, that's, I mean, that's cyber, right? I mean, like we're the same sort of thing, right? We, we're more of a digital content in the cybersecurity space. We're not a cybersecurity company right. in a lot of ways, but at the same time, we have to act like a cybersecurity company. You know, there's all these like things, but yeah. Um, Are you guys raising your series A anytime soon or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know you guys are way beyond us. <laughs> well, uh, and also we don't have, if, right, as long as it appears. Right. Yeah. Right. We can only make that investment today while he's in town. Yeah. We should definitely do this more. I think, um, I think this has been great. I, I um, what would be Start amazing. I, Josh with less. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> I love Josh is always good on the episodes. It's great. Yeah, no, he's one of our favorite guests. So yeah, always a pleasure talking to you. Jonathan, uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I just want to thank Les for hosting, uh, hosting us in the podcast here in the, the, uh, his office studio um, that we set up. And so it's great getting to visit Bozeman. Uh, first time to Montana, so it's fun. Um, and hopefully we'll do some skiing this weekend. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.